Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Let's Sleep On It, Reclaiming Parenthood, the podcast. And I'm your host, Taylor Kulik, a sleep and well-being specialist and occupational therapist. My mission with this podcast is to examine the parenting narratives that dominate our culture and grow together as parents. Here, we will talk about biological infant sleep, as well as many other parenting-related topics. And you'll also hear real empowering journeys from parents who are parenting against the grain. I hope that you walk away from each episode feeling inspired, empowered, and supported. Please remember that none of the information shared in this podcast is medical advice, and you should always speak with a trusted healthcare provider if you have any concerns. Let's dive into today's episode. Did y'all know that much like we have a gut microbiome, we also have a skin microbiome, which means we have tons of beneficial bacteria on our skin that protect us from pathogens. And did you also know that when you use harsh soaps and chemicals on your body, it can it can kill those bacteria and it can also create other imbalances, pH imbalances, et cetera, within the skin microbiome. So when I learned this information a couple of years ago, I stumbled upon Alivia skincare, and we have been using it exclusively ever since. So Alivia has body cleanser, so it's like a body wash. My entire family uses it, and not only actually do we use it on our skin as body wash, but we also use it for our hair. Like I don't have shampoo for my kids. I use Alivia for my kids. And I love Alivia because not only does it smell amazing, but it's 100% natural and organic. It's non-toxic. It's free of all artificial fragrances and dyes. It's environmentally friendly. And it's not a soap. It is a prebiotic body cleanser. So it actually helps support and nourish that skin microbiome. And it works so well, especially if you have sensitive skin. It can help with eczema, pariasis, body acne, things like that. We love the green tea honeysuckle scent. It smells heavenly. It's so amazing. I usually stock up and get like five bottles at a time so that I can get free shipping. And they last a really long time. Like five or six bottles will last me, my whole family, about a year or so. So you can go to alivia.com. That's A-L-E-A-V-I-A.com and use the code TaylorK15 and that will save you 15% off of all of your Alivia orders. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Okay, I have to apologize in advance because I am just getting over a little cold um, and I totally lost my voice and it's mostly come back, but my voice is a little bit raspy. So that is how I recorded this episode. So just bear with my voice, please. I am very excited to have Allie Tickton, Dr. Allie Tickton, on the podcast today. Allie is an occupational therapist specializing in sensory integration. Allie is the founder of Play to Progress and the author of Play to Progress, Lead Your Child to Success Using the Power of Sensory Play. Allie uses the science of child development and the joy of play to boost children's confidence and enhance development within all areas of their life, from social and emotional to physical and academic. Allie believes that the best way to support children is by arming their parents from inception with the knowledge and skills necessary to encourage their child's development for success through childhood and beyond. I am very excited for y'all to hear this conversation with Allie today. Sensory processing is one of my passions because it impacts so much of our life. It impacts our entire life, and it's just a subject that not many people know a whole lot about. So I hope that this conversation helps you understand your child and maybe even yourself a little bit better. Hi, Allie. Thank you so much for joining me today. Would you mind just giving a quick introduction of who you are and what you do? Sure. First, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be on today. So my name is Allie Tickton. Some may call me Dr. Allie Tickton, but I prefer to go with just Allie. I'm a pediatric occupational therapist. So it's similar to you, Taylor. And what I specialize in is sensory processing. So there's something called sensory integration, and we'll dive into that later, but I really specialize in our sensory system, how we can use our sensory system to help a little one understand their own body and be able to self-regulate. My goal is to really empower parents 
to help them understand how can I play with my little one to build a strong foundation for development? I really believe that sensory play is an absolute key and extremely important all the way from birth, all the way on and through childhood to help build this strong foundation. And I really want to help empower parents to understand how to engage with their little ones. So I own a company called play to progress. We call ourselves a play-based learning center. We have classes from parent and me classes. And then we also do traditional therapy group therapy. Um, I also am an author. I have a book called play to progress, but the company is the number two and the book is TO. And that that's me. Some online courses, lots of fun stuff. Awesome. Yeah. I have your book. It's great. I highly recommend it. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about what sensory processing is? So for those who are listening, who maybe this is a new term to them, a new concept, can you explain what that is um, and more about the senses and how many senses we actually have? Absolutely. So I'm going to start with this analogy that I often use. And if you have my book, you've seen the diagram in, in the book, but for years and years, I've been drawing this out for parents. And if you think of our development, like a tree, so what does a tree have? It has its roots, it has the trunk and it has branches, right? So the roots to our tree, those are the most important. We want to keep those healthy and watered, right? Those are our senses. So the kind of like the foundation to our development, where we take in all of our nutrients is in our roots. So in our senses. So we actually have eight senses and I know that's going to come to a shock. And there's some debate if the eighth sense is a sense or not for our purposes, I'm going to call it a sense just so it's a little bit easier to understand, but we have our five senses that we know. And then we have these three quote unquote hidden senses. I say quote unquote, because I wish they weren't hidden. I wish that along with the sense of smell, we were teaching about our vestibular sense, which is our sense of movement may have heard of it with vertigo. Um, but we don't. And so these three hidden senses are just as important as our other five. And together they make these roots of the tree. So these eight really important roots that we need to provide nutrition to. So how do we get this nutrition? Well, through sensory play. Mm -hmm. So essentially we are getting all the information from the world. So our water is all of this, you know, sensory input that comes into us, right? It's going to come into our brain. We need to make sense of it and then create an output for it. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Totally. Yep. Okay. So I'm always trying with analogies to help under help parents understand the sensory system because it is truly an art. And I know that sounds silly and of course I love it, but it really is an art and a science. It's extremely complicated and really, really beautiful at the same time. And there's so much creativity that can happen while, you know, doing sensory play while engaging our senses. So essentially we have these eight senses and I'm just going to go through the three hidden ones real quick. I briefly mentioned vestibular. That's our sense of movement it helps to define our relationship with gravity. So for example, is a child comfortable letting their feet leave the ground? If they're not comfortable, something we may call gravitational insecurity, then they may refuse to play on the playground. And it can look like, oh, you know, they're really shy, different things like that. But the reality is they're not comfortable in their body. They're not comfortable letting their feet leave the ground. And so they're not going to play. It's going to have a big impact on their social skills. So that's just one quick example there. I can go into many, many more. Then we have my personal favorite sense. And I always joke that if I was a sensory specialist without a favorite sense, would that be right? I don't know. <laughs> um, so 
this is my absolute favorite sense. No other sense comes close for me. That's because of how much it helps me regulate. And that is our proprioceptive sense, which is essentially our sense of where we are in space. It also happens to be an extremely regulating sense, which we will get into later. Proprioceptive input is any big like force against the muscle. So jumping, crashing, pushing, pulling, think CrossFit. Now CrossFit on adults, what does it look like? It looks like flipping tires and all these different things. CrossFit type exercises for kids looks like playing on the playground. It looks like hanging from the monkey bars, crossing the monkey bars. It looks like climbing. It looks like crashing onto crash pads, different things like that. Then our third hidden sense is this is the sense that I was saying. There's some debate. Is it a sense? Is it not? We're learning a lot about this sense right now, and it's called interoception. This is our internal awareness. Do I understand? Am I aware of what is going on inside my body? Can I feel and recognize that I have to go potty? Can you imagine how important that is for potty training. You can't potty train if you're not recognizing that sensation that right. I need to go potty. Yeah. So those are our eight senses, and it basically a very quick very quick overview of why they're so, so important real quick. One other thing I'll mention, and I will jump more into this later is the first two years of life. We're actually in our sensory motor stage. So kids are learning by moving and engaging these senses. When we are constantly getting feedback from our environment through our senses, when you're driving, you hear an ambulance, what do you do? You pull over. When a child's on the playground and they hear the bell, what do they do? They line up. They need to process that input and know, oh, here's my action to it. And these are just simple examples, but this gets much more complex. Yeah, for sure. Um, proprioception is also my favorite sense. So <laughs> I talk about it all the time. I recommend parents pretty much all parents of toddlers and children incorporate proprioceptive movement into their pre-bedtime routine because it is just generally helpful um, for regulating the nervous system for pretty much like most children with few exceptions. Um, so proprioception is also my favorite, but can you go into a little bit of what is sensory play? You're talking about sensory play, but what exactly is that and what does it look like? Absolutely. So most parents, when they hear sensory play, what do they think? They think tactile play, messy play texture. Yeah. And, and I, I joke, cause I'm so happy. Sensory play is kind of having a moment right now. Like we're talking about it. You go into target and target has a sensory line. Like who would have thought when we became OTs that target would have a sensory line. Right. We used to only be able to get weighted blankets from a therapy shop. Um, and so it's amazing that sensory is really having, you know, people are starting to recognize it, but what I worry about is because these three hidden senses in the complexity of the sensory system, isn't understood because it's challenging to understand we're associating sensory play with just tactile play. Now, don't get me wrong. Tactile play is sensory play. It is important. But sensory play is really any play that is engaging all of those eight senses. And we need to engage all of those eight senses, not just focus on just tactile play, even though tactile play is very important. So what sensory play really is, is any play that engages all eight senses that can look like swinging that's sensory play. And I think many parents don't realize that you go to the park, you're swinging where you're getting vestibular input sensory play. Yeah. Like it doesn't always have to be complicated or something new or different that you're adding into your child's day. It's just, it, it's just also the normal type of play. Right. Exactly. They're running sensory play now. Does it, so you're saying it engages all of the eight senses. Does this a sensory play to be considered sensory play? Does it need to engage all of the eight senses at the same time or no? No. And a lot okay. of activities will engage more than one sense but it may be difficult to find an activity that engages all eight at once. Yeah. Some I'm sure will. And I would have to think about, you know, which ones would, and I'm sure more than I'm thinking about at the top of my head. But as soon as I started analyzing activity, I'm sure I'd be like, oh, that one. But, um, you know, I love activities that do engage more than one. Think of something like cooking. 
that's engaging a lot of senses. I love getting kids involved with cooking. I think it's amazing. And that is engaging so many of their senses while doing that, making, you know, anything from healthy food to fun cookies, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have the, the smell, you have the tactile, you have listening often auditory because they need to be listening to instructions. You have oftentimes, depending on the meal, you have some proprioceptive because maybe they're mixing or kneading like a dough or stirring something and having to put that pressure. Um, so cool. And we, that's funny timing because I can't remember what we were talking about, but on my Instagram, something came up like last week or something. And we were joking about how, um, cooking with kids is really, really challenging for a lot of parents and it can be very stressful, but it is so, so beneficial that it's something that I, as a parent, it is very hard for me to cook with my kids Mm -hmm. um, because I'm very much a perfectionist and I like cleanliness and like tidiness. And so it's, it's stressful and overstimulating. Speaking of sensory system, it's overstimulating for me to have mess all around, but it's something that I feel like I need to prioritize. Like at least once a week, I'm going to plan to cook with my child. doesn't have to be all the time, but once a week. And they love it. And oftentimes it's a great way to get them trying new foods. Yeah, for sure. So Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's, yes, you're right. It's a lot more of a mess, but also really, really great. And I love your idea of like once a week, let's do it together. You know, maybe it's Friday night activity after school, the weekend starting something like that. Yeah. What would be an example of sensory play that incorporates the interoception, uh, you know, interoception. Yeah. That's, that's a really good question. And, you know, it's so funny because you're right. That's a challenging one. And it's a lot of like, let's talk about our body mindfulness in any sort of these like meditations and different things like that, and helping to recognize their internal cues Mm. is really, really um, important. And you know, there's, there's some tie between proprioception and interoception, but I won't get into that today, but, um, the interoceptive activities, I think it's very important that kids start to recognize where they feel emotions in their body. Mm -hmm. Um, there's some great work. Some OTs are really doing some really, really great work on this. And it's, it's something that I think we're also learning a lot more of, but helping kids from the time they're really young to understand how does that feel in your body? I don't know about you, but I feel all my emotions in my body. And it's actually something I've had to learn to handle. And I wish I would have started understanding that as a child, because I would have been much more regulated. I used to have big tantrums. So would this be like an example? Um, you know, if you're upset you, something triggers you, you're upset. Now your heart is beating faster or you're, you're breathing faster. Is that an example of something that we could help our kids start to maybe notice? And that's interoception. Okay. You got it. Exactly. Cause I'm thinking like hunger, I'm thinking having to go to the bathroom, but it's more than that. It's anything within the body and how our body is feeling and physiological responses to things. You got it. So it's both of those. Um, it's both. So Yes. Am I hungry? Do I have to go potty? I use the potty because frankly, it's easy to understand and everyone relates, but it is also that heart beating. And that's the piece that I'm saying that I feel like is so, so important. And like I said, there's some incredible OTs that are really, really specializing in this. And I am totally blanking on the OTs name, Kelly Mahler. She is doing some really, really incredible work on this. And I highly recommend looking up her work. Um, but you know, it's exactly that. Like, can we help them understand that when my heart is beating really, really fast, what does that mean? Am I scared? Right. Can I tell the difference between butterflies in my tummy and a hungry tummy? Hmm. That's different ones like that. That's hard yeah. for adults. Sometimes, sometimes I'm like, wait, am I hungry? Exactly. I and so or- that's, that's what I'm saying for me. I'm, I am a deep feeler. So for me as a person who really feels all my emotions, in my body, when I was a little girl, I mean, my poor mom, I would have these just massive blowouts. Cause I was so sensitive and I wish then I would have understood 
at three, four, five, six, someone would have started to help me understand what these feelings felt like in my body. And we had these discussions and we had these meditations and different things that helps us recognize, but talking about that is so, so important for your little yeah. ones. I feel like I don't remember learning about interoception in OT school. And I was in OT school within the last 10 years. So that's a, that's a pretty new addition to the, to the sensory processing world. Right. Yeah. You know, and I always say this, like when I went through OT school, I think maybe we briefly touched on it. It's not something that I like remembered really a lot about. Um, I started learning a lot more about it as, you know, I continued practicing and, you know, through Kelly Mahler's work actually, and through the star Institute. So, like I said, I highly, highly recommend looking her up and learning learning more about it yeah. through her as well. Okay. Enough about interoception. Sorry. I'm just interested in that no, one. No worries. Um, I'm looking up, uh, have you read Mona De La Hook's, uh, newer book? It's about this kind of this sensory and, oh, it's called, um, what is it called? Brain body parenting. I haven't read it, but I think you I would love it? it. Yeah. I think you would yeah. love it. It, it. it really, um, integrates a lot of the sensory processing idea and what you're talking about, about having these big explosive tantrums when you were a little girl, because you felt everything so deeply and how, you know, some of our children are just more sensitive and sometimes they are, um, you know, something happens and their emotions are being expressed through their body and they can't always control their body and their emotions. And what they don't need from us in those moments is, um, lecturing or scolding. They need us to help them make their body feel safe. Um, so it's, it's, it's related for sure. And I think it's, all of this is so important, for parents to understand, because I think when we are coming from this, you know, mainstream parenting paradigm, behavior-based parenting paradigm, we forget about everything else. We forget about, or we just don't know about, there's so much nuance and complexity to why our children are doing the things that they're doing. And lecturing our children all day is not going to change the way their bodies are responding to certain things. Yes, yes, yes. I wish I could like scream at the top of my lungs, like celebrate that statement because it is so true. I talk about this with parents every single day. If you think about it, if you have a coffee cup and then, and you keep pouring, you keep pouring. So you keep adding more sensory input. What's going to happen? That coffee cup may eventually overflow, right? Sometimes it's just too much for our kids. If our kiddos are really struggling to process sensory input, very sensitive to the sensory input, whatever it may be within their sensory system. Sometimes they just become overstimulated. They become dysregulated is the word that we use. And yes, it may look, so it might look like they, you know, are tantering because the ice cream shop is out of their favorite flavor ice cream. But what happened earlier in the day to slowly fill that coffee cup, right? Did some, did something go unexpected? You know, what happened? And now they're safe. They're with mom. They're with dad. We're in a safe place. I feel safe. Now we're exploding. You know, that was like the straw that broke the camel's back. And let's be honest, that happens to us as adults too. 100%. It's it's this sensory processing stuff. Isn't just relevant and applicable to children. It's also relevant and applicable to everybody adults. 100%. And the other thing is sometimes kids may have, and I'm going to use this word behavior, even though I don't love the word behavior. (laughs) I'm very open about that. So I wish I had a different word for it, but I think the word everyone will understand is behavior. So I'm going to use this word behaviors. So for instance, a child may bite and, you know, of course, if a bite happens in school, it's a big deal. We call the parents and of course it is a big deal, but they may not have chosen, made that conscious decision. So when I think of behavior, I think of, I made the conscious decision. I see my little brother with that lollipop. I don't want him to have it. So I'm going to purposely walk over to him and rip that lollipop out of his hand. Behavior, sibling rivalry, typical. 
you know? Yeah. But oftentimes, so if a little one gets so, so excited or a little bit, you know, too overwhelmed and Johnny is right next to them and they bite Johnny, that may not be a behavior that bite may have been their way of self-regulating. That's going to give them proprioceptive input. It's really calming. We've talked to, they actually may be trying to regulate. Same with a peer who may go up to another peer and squeeze them so hard. Well, the peer may not like that squeeze, but that's helping the child regulate. So it's not a behavior. They're, they're, fulfilling some need they're trying to regulate but doing it in a way that isn't you know socially the the best and and you know is interfering with peer relationships and obviously if they're biting also having an impact on a peer right um so understanding that and understanding the why yeah why is this quote unquote behavior happening right mm-hmm Um, okay. So moving back to sensory play, why is sensory play important? So if you remember earlier, I'm going to start with just this sensory motor stage. So if you remember earlier, I mentioned that these first two years are the sensory motor stage. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? So these, so kids are learning through their senses and through movement. So children are constantly learning. They learn about their world, about their environment through their senses. Sensory play is how they are going to build these critical neural connections in their brain. It is so incredibly important. Don't quote me on this statistic, but I believe somewhere like something around 90% of a child's brain is developed by age five. It's somewhere right around there. I could be slightly off on that. Um, And so if you think of it, these early years, which we already know, and it is widely recognized are so, so critical and they're learning through their senses. So here we go. We just build that bridge of why sensory play is so important. Remember our senses are like those roots to our tree. We need to nourish those roots through sensory play, learn about our environment by moving and engaging our senses. It's also going to help with language development, our fine motor development, gross motor development, everything that they're going to need for school and beyond all kind of starts with this sensory play. But if you remember when I'm talking about sensory play, I'm not talking about just tactile play. I'm talking about play that engages all eight senses. And I just want to reiterate that because it is something so hard to kind of retrain your brain. So when they're out, you know, on a hike, we, I live in Los Angeles, so very easy to go on hikes. And when they're out exploring, you know, the leaves and crunching through them and finding sticks and, you know, digging for rocks or collecting seashells at the beach, any of that, that's all sensory play. Yeah. So cool. We love sensory play. Uh, How can you talk about the connection between sensory play and self-regulation? Absolutely. So all of our senses, so all each of them can used in different ways can be both alerting and calming. So I'm going to give you a quick example and it'll be a vestibular example. So that's our sense of movement. If you remember when you rock a baby really slowly, what are you doing? You are calming them often that's using vestibular in a calming way. Now, when your little one is out at the playground on the tire swing and they're whipping around in circles or on a ride, like the teacups at Disneyland, what does that do? That increases their arousal, right? So we just took one and we used it in a calming way and another in alerting way. So all of our senses used in different ways can either help calm or alert. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Something, and we mentioned this, something like proprioception can be incredibly calming. Pacifier is actually proprioceptive input. I don't think people realize that we get it Mm -hmm. orally as well. Um, And so using, we can use all of our senses to understand and, and help to regulate 
our little ones. And a lot of times that means, are we aware of what is in the environment? Something like a carnival, it's, it's getting to be Halloween time. Pumpkin patches often have those big blow up things and face paints and animals and this and this and loud, and they're very overstimulating. Yeah. And at the same time, you can use a pumpkin patch in a very regulating way. Um, not in LA, our pumpkin patches are a little smaller, but you can still do it in where I'm from in Michigan. You can really get out in a pumpkin patch in the middle of nowhere and roll a pumpkin. Mm. You're rolling a pumpkin that's providing proprioceptive input. So if you move from, if your little one is really struggling in the loud environment and we move to a much more quiet environment, have them help you roll the pumpkin to a bucket and you're really, really calm. That's going to help calm your little one. So think of it that way and how we use our senses in different ways to help alert and calm, you know, kind of like we mentioned earlier, your coffee cup can spill over. And so we, our goal at Play to Progress is very much, how do we, and my goal is how do we help, help kids and parents to understand how can we make sure we're emptying that cup a little sooner? How can we help kids understand their own body in our big feeling little bodies groups? That's what we do at Play to Progress. We're very much like, let's teach the kids to understand what their body needs and and it's so cute because now so many kids will run across the room and be like, they need a body tool. So, <laughs> um, helping them recognize that internally as well. But that also means at home, how, how can we adapt any environment we're in, you know? Yeah. Um, I love that. And I guess that's also kind of where the interoception piece comes in a little bit is recognizing what you're feeling when you're doing certain things and how that's affecting your body. And, you know, adults, I talk about this sometimes adults, we might not know, like not everybody knows what sensory processing is or what, what all of these terms mean, um, prior to this episode, of course, but we, a lot of us, we are automatically doing things throughout the day to help regulate our body. So for example, if we're in the car and we're starting to get sleepy as we're driving, we might blast the AC to kind of offer some, some stimulation and input to keep us awake. Um, we may, if we're feeling really, really anxious, I'm like, I'm a nail biter. I've had to work on my nail biting, but I used to just automatically bite my nails when I was anxious because it's a little bit of proprioceptive input and it helps calm me down. Not the best habit, but I was doing that without cognitively thinking, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to bite my nails and that will give me some proprioceptive input, which will calm my nervous system. I was just doing it because my body naturally knows that's what can help me sometimes. So maybe a maladaptive coping uh, mechanism, but still. So we're always doing things to help calm our bodies down and help alert us or activate us if we need that. And children though, need more help to be able to regulate their bodies before they learn how to do that. Right. Yeah. And you know what I always say about kids, oftentimes if kids will, will seek out what they need. And so you know, um, for example, little ones may, who need a lot of that deep pressure may decide I need five layers of clothes on this feels good on my body, but it may not always be the way that they're, you know, they're getting this input biting, whatever it is the best way hmm. us as adults, you know, since I was a very little kid, I have loved probe. So proprioception and OT a lot of OTs call it probe Mm -hmm. for short. Um, and it's funny because before I would go to bed, I used to ask my mom, I would call it set me up. And I would say, you need to set me up. And I would have her like roll blankets and pillows under me is tight, essentially swaddle me. And then I would kind of like wiggle around and, um, and get all comfortable but that was me helping myself regulate. I obviously now recognize that as an adult, I still sleep with a weighted blanket, um, which isn't technically pro deep pressure, but I'm not going to go there today. Um, so it's just little complexities of the nervous system, you know, Mm -hmm. that I always want to make sure, you know, I'm giving accurate information. So just giving that little, little tidbit, but Um, anyways, so 
I'm a big believer that if we watch a child and what they're going for, they they'll give us information on what they need. Right. And then it's our job, especially our job as OTs to help take that information and help them use it in a more productive way. So, Oh, we're biting. That's, that's not a great way. And I'm using this example biting because I think it's an easy example to understand. Let's grab a chew tube. Now they have jewelry. You can get it anywhere. Mm -hmm. And now you have jewelry you can use. So different things like that. I always keep a hair scrunchie. And one thing I'll mention too, especially as parents, it's okay to admit and, and to acknowledge you're dysregulated too, and tell your kids that. Yeah. And so there's a program called zones of regulation. I love it. And you can say, Oh, I'm a little bit in the yellow zone right now, or my body is feeling a little silly. I'm going to go take a minute to myself in my bedroom, because now you're saying you're almost giving permission to your little one to acknowledge that, wait, mommy did that. I can do that too. Right. And look, it happens with mommy. Mommy's body also gets, you know, has a hard time sometimes my body too. So talking about that as a family, I think is something really important. I always tell kids, so i never leave without something on my wrist, like some sort of scrunchie. And I twist it because my personal body has a hard time sitting still for a long time. So I twist it and kind of fidget with it. And I always point that out to kids and parents. And whenever I'm sitting in a parent meeting, I'll always kind of point out to parents what they're doing so that they understand, oh, look, this is how I'm regulating. So I highly recommend everyone, as you're listening to this, take a second and think, what are you doing right now? Are you driving and fidgeting with the wheel in any way? What is your body doing when you're sitting in a two hour meeting? Think about it next time and notice it. Mm -hmm. I love that. Mine is, I don't know if this really counts, but I always have to be like folded up into myself. Like my legs have to be crossed. Ideally I would have my leg all the way up here. Like I just feel, I don't know if that's more, but I I guess I consider that kind of proprioceptive. Maybe you're going to tell me it's not because I thought weighted blankets are proprioceptive too. (laughs) We don't have to get into that topic, but it just makes me feel like more, I, I, I needed more awareness of where my body is. And so having my body, like touching my body parts, touching each other helps me feel more balanced and and stable and secure. Right. Right. Well, it is, it's deep pressure and yeah, like technically deep pressure isn't pro, but yeah, uh, it's, you know, uh, I'm losing the word right now, but yeah, you're right. You're getting deep pressure through it. You're regulating. Everyone has their own way. And the sooner we can help kids recognize my dream is that we're recognizing this and we're seeing this in all schools and really, really talking about this because the reality to learning is a child cannot effectively learn without first being regulated. Mm -hmm. That's that foundation, those roots. Think about if you are upset about something or feeling fuzzy, and then you have to take in new information. That's hard. Versus if you're like having a great day, you just had your coffee, you're ready. If you go to a conference, you're going to take it in. You're, you're well-fed, had a healthy breakfast. You are going to take in that information much more effectively. Right. Well, and I know there are more schools and hopefully this becomes more and more mainstream, but more schools acknowledging this because for so long, the the standard approach has been in schools, especially that children need to sit still and be quiet and for, you know, hours and hours a day. And that's just not reasonable or realistic for, for kids. They are not meant to sit still without moving or talking for hours a day. So now there's some schools are recognizing that and having like bouncy ball, uh, not bouncy balls, um, exercise balls that they can sit on or fidgets or, you know, a, a band under the chair that they can kind of snap with their, their feet. And so, um, I think that's great. And the other example that I was thinking of when you were talking about 
providing your child with an alternative way to get that need met is um, related to sleep because I get asked all the time, you know, my child is nursing and, and nursing breastfeeding is proprioception yeah. as well. That's why nursing is so calming. One of the reasons why nursing is so calming. Um, but my child is constantly nursing to sleep and just pinching me or pulling my hair or pulling their hair or kicking their legs at night a lot. And so I always ask, well, um, how can you kind of give them an alternative to those movements or offer them that input before they go to sleep? So if they're kicking their feet at night, can you offer them some deep pressure massage or let them kick into your hands before bed? Or can you give them a stuffed animal or a lovey to pinch instead of them pinching your skin um, or something like that? So how can you offer them um, an alternative for getting that input that they need? Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. 100%. You got it. And it's, it is interesting because I think, um, you know, you're right. Many more schools are doing it. One thing is how important recess is and we're seeing recesses be shorter and that's Mm -hmm. a big bummer. Yeah, for sure. Um, how would you suggest to set up a child's environment to support their independence and regulation? Good question. Okay. So I'm going to do a little caveat at this. I'm going to suggest something that I know feels difficult. And I'm saying this because recently I went on my own Goodreads and this was one of the critiques of my book. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, take what works for you. But I really believe that creating as much of a calming and restful space as you can for your little one is important. So one big thing that I am really big on is attempting and trying to have no toys in the bedroom. Mm. Now, when I say this, cause I know that feels really hard. If I can talk about toys for hours and you really don't need a lot of toys. So you can easily have one, you know, small bin of toys in a cabinet somewhere. Um, you don't need a ton, ton of toys. We tend to have many more toys than we need, which is why that feels unattainable, but creating a space being really, really mindful of what your space is. Remember senses, certain ways can be alerting and other ways can be calming. So colors using muted colors, Mm -hmm. visual clutter is overstimulating. So not having all the posters and all of that on your walls. Now a beautiful mural, amazing, but to have, you know, tons of posters and different things on the wall, maybe too much. So being mindful of your colors, being mindful of your organization. If you walk into play to progress, you'll notice that everything is in a bin that, you know, so you can't see through it. It's in a bin or a cabinet and well-organized. And I think this is really, really important because then we're eliminating this visual clutter. So your, you know, your diaper, your diaper shelf, just put them all in a bin instead of right out kind of everything out clutter on the counter. So being really, really mindful of that. Also having a cozy space. I call it a cozy corner. Some call it a calming corner. Some call it a regulating corner, whatever you want to call it, but a cozy space that your little one can go to when their body is feeling a little like they need to regulate. Mm -hmm. And so you want it to actually be really, really tiny. And so if you even have like the tiniest little spot, that's kind of like a dead spot that you have nothing to do with, like between the couch and the wall or whatever it is like that spot that there's just, it's not big enough. There's really nothing you can do with it. A lot of people will have one, a little tiny spot under the stairs, whatever it is that you have, that's nice and cozy, put some pillows in there maybe use a piece of cloth to have a little door on it and make that a spot where there's maybe one book in it, maybe a little bit of something to provide proplic therapy, something like that, um, that they can, it can be their spot to help them regulate never a timeout, but they go to it on their own. And I mean, Taylor, I know you specialize in sleep. So when we're talking about this and this clutter and visual clutter, all of that has an impact on their ability to calm. So their ability to sleep. So Mm -hmm. we want their sleeping area 
to be very calming and not their play area. So those two areas should be separate rather than together. And I don't love that the word should, I try to never should anyone. So I apologize for using that word. If they can be separate to be separate. Um, but like I said, you really don't need many toys at all. Actually fewer toys is better. Mm-hmm. And so that makes that much more attainable. Yeah. Yeah. That is hard. Um, for sure. Especially like we try to be pretty minimalistic with our toys, but then we get lots of gifts from people and, you know, there's only so much we can control, but I love that. And I totally agree. And I talk sometimes about, you know, think about what colors you're painting the walls of your child's bedroom, um, you know, and because if there, are they bright, are they bright pink? Are they orange? Are they, you know, if it's a bright stimulating color like that, it might have an effect on your child's regulation, um, and ability to calm themselves at night that is impacting their sleep. Absolutely. And I don't know how you feel about sign sound machines and like calming music, but I love it because for me, it's first, it's my key to sleep, but two, it's really, really calming. I often turn to classical music when little ones are having a hard time. Mm -hmm. And I as quick when I have a group of little ones that are having a hard time. I, as quick as I can turn the environment over to a calming environment. So if we were just doing something wild and loud and fun, and there's always times for those, I will, as quick as I can floor the lights, put on some classical music, eliminate the clutter. And you will watch how a little one will quickly start to calm. So environment really does matter. And sometimes that's hard in public spaces too. And so, like I said, like the pumpkin patch, find that little corner, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to remind everybody too, we're not specifically talking about sleep right now. We're just talking about like general life and during the day, but all of this also applies to bedtime and to sleep times Mm -hmm. because the point, like in order to sleep, your child has to be regulated. They have to be calm. And that is why I am so not a fan of non-responsive sleep training because you're not teaching your child anything. They, they are not able to learn. Like you said, you have to be regulated to learn. And so there's this idea that our children are learning to self-soothe when they're crying in distress, but they literally cannot learn any valuable skills while they're stressed. Um, but you know, what we can do as parents is provide them with a calm space, a space that supports relaxation. And so all of these things are relevant to sleep and just making sure that um, your child is having appropriate uh, sensory inputs during the day that will help their nervous system remain calm, that will impact their ability to sleep. Exactly. Exactly. And your bedtime, like you mentioned, your bedtime routine, it's just so important in your environment. One thing I love that you said is the color of the bedroom, the color of your nursery, it does can really have an impact like neon pink, which you don't often see neon pink nurseries. And there's a reason for that, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Um, but you know, as children get older and have a little more autonomy and want to make choices in their rooms, I do find that that often becomes more of an issue because maybe their parents were like, okay, you can choose what color you paint your room, which is great to an extent, but then it's this bright neon color or something. And I'm like, I, I would have to say, no, I would have to give them choices. You can have this color or this color. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, for sure. Okay. What you were talking about toys and how we don't really need that many toys, which toys in your opinion, best support development? Good question. So I have a lot of passion about toys, which is just funny, but I think the reason I have it is I'm a big believer that we really learn about our interests through a play as a child. When I was little, I would never leave home without a doll. Always had to have a doll played with dolls for a very long time and had tons of dolls. Now look what I do. So I also really believe that as technology gets smarter, there's always pros to technology and always cons, but a big con that I see is our toys are playing for our children instead of our children playing with them. So what does that mean? So if you have a dog, a toy dog, and you push it and it walks and it barks, your little one is going to, you know, sit on the floor with the toy dog, going to push it. It's going to walk and it's going to bark. Now, if you have a dog that is stuffed and doesn't walk and doesn't bark, 
your little one is going to use their, you know, their, their problem solving their Yeah. Their, that's the word I'm like losing it. <laughs> um, their creativity to decide where am I going to take this dog on an adventure right now? They're going to use their motor skills. They're going to move the dog. They're not just going to be sitting on the floor and kind of watching it. They're going to actually move the dog, take the dog on an adventure, and they're going to make the barking sound themselves. Mm-hmm. And so there's no one prescribed way to play with this dog. So many of our toys that are require batteries are electronic. There's this prescribed way to play with them. And so a little one isn't having to use any creativity. They're not building that skill. And I actually think so many kids also can't sit in boredom anymore. And they, they're struggling to come up with these creative ideas to come up with what to do. Totally. When I was a child, middle of the Midwest, we would all meet outside. And I remember we like out of boxes and sticks built a homeware cut. We were constantly just using nature to build things Mm -hmm. and what we have. We don't see that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being a kid and going out and playing on the driveway and using the little pebbles and rocks in the street as like food. We would run our own restaurants and that would be our food. Um, Right. I think I totally agree with you. And I think the problem is now toys, so many toys are being designed to entertain our children and they don't need entertainment. They can entertain themselves if they only are given the opportunity and space to be creative and to be a little bit bored. Boredom is a good thing. It's how they learn skills. It's how they think it's how they problem solve. Um, so yeah, we try not to have any toys that are just pure entertainment aside from we have like an audio player that plays um, books, but I think that's different. Like reading and books is like a whole different category. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, the other big thing. So if a little one has a lot of toys, what are they going to do? One toy gets hard. They're going to jump to the next. They're going to jump from toy to toy, to toy, to toy, to toy. Versus if they don't have as many toys, they're going to play with each toy for a longer period of time. And then they'll, you know, begin to use it in more inventive ways. Yeah. Well, and also if you're, if you're buying more, focusing on more quality open-ended toys that can do lots of things and your child can use them in lots of different ways, you just don't need as many toys. If you have one toy that does one specific function, your child is going to easily get bored of that toy because there's only so much they can do with it. And they're going to feel like they need to move on to the next toy. So that is also, I feel like contributing to the problem of like as kids just being inundated with so many toys. And that's also like you're talking about earlier, overstimulating and it's harder exactly. to decide, okay, what do I want to play with right now? Because there are 500 options in this one space and that is too much. And by the way, it's also awful for your living room yeah. <laughs> where who in, you know, your living room will end up with toys all over the floor. So it's one of these things. I, I love a good toy rotation. Um, if you have a subscription box, like love every, I think that's great. And being mindful of how many extra toys do I really need? I don't need this subscription box and 30 more toys, you know, right. yeah. but I do, you know, I can stick with just this box. And I think that's, you know, amazing. Yeah. Um, okay. How can we create sensory experiences at home? Good question. And it is really just engaging in life is the first thing that comes to mind. So what you're doing, cooking, let them join in and cooking. You're exercising in the basement. Great. Like have them do their own exercise in the basement. Kids will naturally kind of copy you, you know? Um, so maybe you pull a yoga ball out and let them play on the yoga ball or you create their own little obstacle course. That's of course safe for them. Nature, engage in nature, go outside, you know, play, make, build a snowman. That's amazing. Probe is you're rolling the snowballs and lifting them from one on top of the other. I remember I used to do that all the time when I was little, go on a hike, go swimming, just naturally really engage with your environment and move. That is a really, really natural way. The other way, if you want to create more curated experiences, use your recycling bin. Your recycling bin probably has everything in it that you need to create a great sensory activity. So 
you can make a box and Amazon, we all, you know, tend to have Amazon boxes lying around. I know I have a few a day, so (laughs) I won't lie. Um, so can the Amazon box be a rocket? Maybe you let them paint the Amazon box and they paint it with a pastry brush. I love painting with pastry brushes. Um, they can use, if they're little, they can use a puree and a pastry brush. That way you don't have to worry about them eating it. Mm-hmm. Um, anything like that. You have some stale cereal. Great. Throw the stale cereal in the blender and you've just created edible sand. Mm, that's a good idea. So use anything that before you throw it away, think about like, what can I use a bottle, throw some beans in it, make a shaker. There's so many different things you can use that are in your recycling bin, or maybe you're about to throw away, you know, and so creating any of those, and it doesn't have to be anything like fancy that you buy. I think if you put sensory bin or something into Instagram, you'll get like tons of these curated sensory bins. Those are great, but you can also really just create it and have a really open-ended one at home. Mm -hmm. Have your little one crawl through a box, create as they get older, their, that box becomes a rocket. So maybe for your younger kids, it's a tunnel to crawl through and your older kids, it's that same box turns into a rocket ship. Yeah. I love that. My, my kids' favorite toys are boxes. Every time we have a big box that comes in, my daughter's like, oh, can we keep this box as a car or whatever it is? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we can keep it for a few days. But then I'm like, oh, it's just more clutter in the house. But I try to let them play with it for a few days until the next big box comes in, but they love it. And they have so much fun. Um, And it just goes also again to reinforce that you really don't need a lot of toys because they can use anything as a toy. They can use kitchen stuff as my kids will go and empty our kitchen cabinets with the blender and the, the, all of the pots and pans. And I'm like, guys, you have play pots and pans, but they don't need the play pots and pans because they can just use the real stuff. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Like, do you think that all parents really need to be creating these sensory experiences every day for their kids? Or do you think that most kids just allowing them the opportunity and time during the day to free play, will they naturally engage in the sensory play that they need on their own? This is a really good question. So of course I think you know, curated sensory experiences are great. And I also think that these curated sensory experiences, sometimes I always say, follow a child's lead. They may turn into something, a total different game and don't, don't make them stay with that. Like sometimes if you're like, oh, I'm doing an activity. I say this about my book. There's a lot of activities in there. And I I specifically say if they're doing an activity and they want to change it into something else, they had an idea, go with it. And I think as our adult brains, we're like, no, these are the rules of the game must stick to the rules of the game, let them go with it. Um, and I, my big feeling is if we turn the TV off, if we take away the battery toys, we put away the iPads, we put away all the tech and we give children the space to play. So we either take them outside to the park or just in your living room, (laughs) um, but give them, you know, the space to play with not too many toys out and no technology out. I think they will naturally really, really learn to play Mm -hmm. and they'll be able to engage their own sensory system. Now, initially it may be hard if they're not used to that. Right. But eventually with practice, they'll get there. And my goal is that we have kids getting there from birth because they, because parents begin to understand how important this is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Last question. Cause we're running short on time. Although I feel like I could talk to you for another hour or two. Um, what do you think of baby equipment? Good question. And so, you know, I know we all have so much of it and I think baby equipment. I don't love it. (laughs) Um, and I'm not talking by the way about like a crib, a car seat, obviously very, very important, a stroller, any of that more when it comes to like the extra stuff. So you of course, sometimes will need somewhere to place your baby, 
my big thing with baby equipment is choose baby equipment that play that does not place your baby in a position. They are not yet ready to hold. So take, for example, a bumbo bumbos are propping your little one up often in the wrong position, um, while sitting. And so they're pelvis may not be in that perfect position. They're not using any of their own muscles. And if they're not sitting yet, and we're constantly sitting them in that, then they're not having to use their own muscles to do that sitting. Mm -hmm. And so being really, really mindful of what we use, I, it kills me when I walk down an aisle at target and I see all these jumperoos and different things. And on them, it'll say like benefits, gross motor development when it really does the opposite such deceptive marketing. Exactly. And so it's such a shame. And I think that's why SOTs kind of have to like scream it at, and PTs too, who I know are so on our team, have to like scream it at the top of our lungs so that parents truly do understand. Yeah. Yeah. And I always say, you know, if you do need to use a piece of baby equipment, maybe try to limit the time. So don't just, you know, have your baby in a jumper or something like that. Um, hours a day, maybe choose a couple of 20 minute sessions during the day that you really need it. Like you really need to go get dinner made so that you can feed the rest of your family. And this would help you in that time and make it a 15 to 20 minute limit. Um, but use it only when you really need it and prioritize those times. Um, instead of just, it's kind of the norm that we just think of, you know, we just use these things to put our baby in it. And we think it's helping them. You know, what I'm really getting from this whole interview is that my, this is just my, like, I guess, interpretation and perspective on this is because I'm thinking, you know, a hundred years ago, nobody knew the term sensory play. Like that wasn't a thing, but kids were still doing all of these things and playing in this way. It seems like we've really had to study this, this topic a little bit more and come up with solutions to this new problem, newer, relatively speaking of kids being indoors all day, kids being on screens, babies being in in equipment and not getting the natural movement that a hundred, 200, 300 years ago, children were just naturally getting by living their life. You got it. Is that right? I mean, yeah, they weren't talking about sensory play. Then parents weren't Pinteresting cute ideas for their children to do. Exactly. You got it. 100%. Sensory play is, is so much more than, you know, what we see on Pinterest. You, we need, it's, it's kind of like the crux of technology. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting too, because I've, I've talked with and read work from a lot of early childhood development professionals who are not necessarily OTs, who are not um, very, very knowledgeable about sensory processing. And they're all kind of saying the same thing limit screen time, let your kids be outdoors and free play as much as possible. And really the end goal, it's all the same, even when they're not, we're not using all of the same terminology and like intricate intricacies behind what is actually happening during that play process. Exactly. You got it. 100%. And I, I think there's a reason that we're all kind of echoing the same thing. Yeah. And like, I know there's another newer term that I've heard recently, nature deficit disorder. Kids are suffering from nature deficit disorder and it's all, I mean, it's all related. 100%. And, and so that is really why I want to help parents understand what true sensory play. And that's where play to progress comes in, because I do think it is so, so important that we're building this strong foundation and helping parents to understand it because marketing doesn't tell them marketing tells them the stuff is good. Right. Well, Ali, thank you so much for joining us today. It was so helpful. Can you leave our listeners with, um, just information about where they can find you and your work and your, I know you wrote a book, so where they can find that, um, information if they want to learn more. Absolutely. So you can find me at our website, play the number two progress.com you can also find me on Instagram at, so our company Instagram is play the number two progress. And then I also have an Instagram, Dr. Allie Tickton. You can buy my book, play T O progress anywhere that books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, it's everywhere. So feel free to grab that. Amazing. Well, thank you again so much for joining us today. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. 
Hey guys, if you like this podcast, if you appreciate any of the episodes and have found them helpful to you, would you please do me a favor and go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review? Those reviews really help this podcast reach more people, so I would so appreciate that. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review if you feel called to. It really helps our message reach more parents. You can also follow me on Instagram at Taylor Kulik for similar content or visit my website at www.taylorkulik.com. I offer online courses where we really dive into infant and toddler sleep holistically. And we also offer one-to-one holistic sleep support services if you're looking to improve your child's sleep or shift patterns without sleep training. If you know a parent who would benefit from this podcast, please share. And if you'd like to financially support this podcast to allow me to create more episodes more often, you can visit anchor.fm slash Taylor I hope you'll join me next time.